All right, so just a, co- a couple of comments uh, before we begin. Um, I love the body of Waukee Community Church. I love being your pastor. Uh, I, I just truly enjoy the mission that we have as a church to make disciples. Uh, I, I had a chance to go to a concert last night, the Laura, Laura Story Matt Maher concert uh, over at Point of Grace Church, and, and it was awesome. It was a really great experience uh, just to have uh, all those people singing the praises of our Almighty God. But when I walked out of there, one of the, thing, the feelings I had is I love Waukee Community Church because we have a vision of making disciples. And, you know, um, if we don't have this big show, uh, you know, it becomes all the much harder for us to attract a crowd. And that's why it's so important that this mission of discipleship, that each of us own it. That, that the, the church of Jesus Christ uh, at Waukee Community Church would grow and flourish because each one of you are the missionaries. Each one of you are, are the, those who go out and live out this grace of Christ every single day. So church isn't just something on a Sunday morning, but it's something every single day. And I just want to encourage you as we continue to grow and develop and mature as a body to, to remember that every single day you are the church. Okay, so what we're doing today is we're reviewing the first chapter, first three chapters or first two and a half chapters of James before Nick Redden next week preaches and takes us through the last half of uh, chapter three and we continue on. And I, I want to begin by <laughs> telling you um, a, a, about a story about when I was first married. Clarissa and I got married 16 plus years ago now, which makes me feel old all the time, but I'm not, not old. I just have gray hair. And so, uh, but you know, uh, one of the things that we uh, did is we had actually quite a bit of time for our honeymoon, but not a lot of money. And so some people had loaned us a place out in Colorado and we drove out to Colorado and spent some time there. And well, one day we were walking through the streets of Breckenridge, Colorado. If you've ever been to Breckenridge, it's a cool ski town. It was, it's the middle of the summer, so there was no skiing. There's some alpine slides and there's stuff we did when we were there. Uh, but you know, I, I found out quickly that this bride, this woman that I had married, really enjoys shopping. Now, you have to understand that, uh, by the way, she controls her urges very well. I, I must say that. But you have to understand, for me, shopping, I, I might just rather go to the dentist than go shopping. I don't know. It's, it's sort of a toss-up. It's just painful. But, you know, she's my new bride, and this is what she wanted, wants to do. And, and so we go off, and we're walking down these streets uh, of this tourist town where everything is overpriced, and we're shopping. And it's just, it's just painful. And she comes across these two clay vases that she just thinks are, are amazing. And she has to have them. And they were $20. Now, uh, that doesn't sound like very much $20. But I'm thinking, to, what are we going to do with these? Cl- They're going to go on a shelf, and that adds to the things we have to dust at our new house. And so, like, what good are these clay vases, right? But she really wanted them. And, and so, of course, I said yes, but inside I was really angry about it, you know. <laughs> I was really disgruntled about these two clay vases that she had bought. And, and uh, you know, for me, the idea of spending $20, like, um, like food is a great thing to spend $20 on. Because, you know, it's useful. I enjoy it. Vases, not so much. Well, anyway, she buys these clay vases. They pack them. They put them in a bag. And I'm carrying the vases. And so I, I'm upset because I've got these worthless vases in my hand in one hand. And so uh, now I need to spend some money on something that's valuable. So we went and got ice cream. And, uh, you know, something that's valuable. And so I had my ice cream cone. It was one of those hand-packed ice cream dips. And it was good. It was homemade 
yummy, creamy ice cream. And it was on my cone. And so I got my ice cream in this hand and my vase, my vase is in this hand. And we're walking down the street and all of a sudden something happened. The ice cream ball on the top of my cone started to fall. In a split second, I had a choice to make. Do I save the ice cream or do I save the vases? Well, instinct kicked in and needless to say, uh, my ice cream got saved and the va- I dropped the vases and they just hit the pavement and they just shattered into a million pieces. It, it, it was like the bag. You could just hear it go clink, 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 you know, when I picked the bag back up. And I was so mad at myself. I mean, what kind of husband chooses his ice cream over his wife's vases? Like, what kind of husband does this? Here I am uh, on our first week of our marriage, and I'm trying to show my wife what a great husband I am, and I choose my ice cream over her vases. Have you ever had a moment like that? Spouses? Have you ever had a moment like that? All right, so we're in the book of James. And... James is a very practical book. Uh, James is constantly putting into application the teachings of Jesus because James was Jesus' half-brother. And so he's saying, okay, we have this body of Jesus' teachings out of there. What does it look like if the church actually lived like Jesus taught? And that's what James is trying to accomplish here in the book of James. And, and so in, in chapter 19 of Matthew, the book of Matthew, um, Jesus talks a little bit about marriage in, in that. And, and Jesus basically uh, elevates marriage in that passage. He says that marriage is important. He talks about it was God's idea, male and female. And, uh, and he begins to reflect on the fact that marriage was God's idea from the beginning. Marriage reflects God's intent. Today, I want you to know a simple thing here. I want you to know that a Christian marriage should be about Christ. A Christian marriage should be about Christ. I'm talking about marriage today because what I want to do is I want to specifically look back over the last three weeks and apply some of these teachings that we've learned in James to the topic and the understanding of marriage. Um, Marriage is something that's been coming up to me a lot recently. Like, I've just been talking to a lot of different people about marriage. Um, I've talked to a lot of different people about struggling marriage. I've talked to people about good marriage. And and there are just a lot of people that have been having this conversation. And it, it seemed to be on my mind a lot today. And so I'm not specifically in in marriage, as we talk about marriage today in the book of James, I'm not specifically looking at any one of you. (laughs) You know, you might think, oh, Pastor Dave's talking to me today because I had this conversation. No, I've had five conversations in the last two weeks about marriage, and it's just been on my mind a lot. And I thought, what would it do if if we took these teachings from James, these things that James has been telling the church in general, and we sort of took a magnifying glass or a tell, and we just honed in on how, what if we applied each of these teachings that James is talking about in our marriages? That's what I aim to accomplish today. Now, there are some of you here that aren't married today. You've never been married. You've been married. You're divorced. You uh, uh, just marriage. You're like 10 and marriage is a long ways off for you. And you're like, oh, I hate it when pastors talk about marriage because it has nothing to do with me. And, and if you're, you're rolling your eyes right now because I'm talking about marriage, hold on a second, okay? Be- because think about it. If you're not married today, you interact every day in your life with somebody who is married. Probably, unless you're a hermit or something. But, you know, uh, you interact every day with, with people that are married. Or maybe one day you want to be married. 
I would just encourage you to take good notes. Because not only today as we look at James applying this specifically to the idea of marriage, not only will you get good advice to pass on to some other people, but uh, this might apply to you someday. So, so if you're not married, it's okay. Just take good notes, listen in, think, think about what I'm talking about today as we look about how these teachings of James apply to marriage. Now, James doesn't come right out and say, okay, hey, everyone, these are the instructions for married couples. Paul does that. And several occasions in Paul's epistles, he comes right out and says, okay, husbands, here's how you're to live towards your wife. And wives, here's how you're to live towards your husbands. Sometimes, you know, Paul just comes right out. James isn't doing that here. But what if we just applied these things? What if we traced marriage through the book of James like a thread? My wife loves to crochet. Um, She has this amazing ability to crochet. And uh, I don't know. I mean, she works a long time sometimes on these blankets or hats, things she comes out with. And I, I'm not sure. What's cool is if you look at those blankets and, and, and you look, you can see just thre- one thread. If you trace a thread, you can see it woven and, and you can try to follow it all the way through the blanket if you're kind of dumb like me sometimes. And look at that. And I, I know for sure that Clarissa wouldn't appreciate it if I took that one thread and just started pulling on it. Uh, I'm fairly confident she wouldn't like that at all. Uh, but that's sort of what I want to do today. I, w- I want to take this concept of marriage and just like a thread, just trace it and pull it through, pull it through the, the, the book of James and see how these things that James is teaching, what if we apply them to our marriage? You see, a Christian marriage should be about Christ. And you might be here today and you might go, Dave, duh. Like that's the most unprofound statement that you've ever preached before. Duh, a Christian marriage should be about Christ. Well, well think about this. When, when people get married, when people get married, it's rarely, it is rarely about Christ, I think. Primarily when we get married, we get married because we're in love. You know, I mean, that's why I got married. I saw this woman and oh, she would be mine. Oh yes. I mean, I just, wow, I was head over heels in love and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And and secondary, so primarily we get married because we're in love. Secondarily, we get married because we love that person enough. We want to care for them. We want to spend our lives taking care of that person. Thirdly, we want a marriage to somehow be about Jesus. Sometimes it's it's like an afterthought. We get married because we're in love and, and, you know, we're coming together and we want to serve, you know, maybe serve each other and show each other how much we love. And by the way, we should probably go to church because if we ever have kids, we want them to be raised in the church. And, and so we should carve out some time in our lives to be involved in a church. And that's sort of how we think about marriage and, and marriage in Jesus. In this, paradigm, in this paradigm, religion is just a tool to bolster our marriage. But I want you to see that marriage... That, that religion isn't a tool to boast, bolster your marriage. Marriage is a tool to bolster God, to glorify God. It's the other way around. God isn't something that can help your marriage. You don't just go to church and, you know, say nice things and sing songs because that'll make your marriage better. I mean, although that might be true. It's the flip side. Your marriage, the point of your marriage is to bring glory to Jesus. I heard on, a, on the radio this week, and I think it was been going all around Facebook, that there was this couple that was married 72 years, and they died within an hour of each other. Uh, I don't know if you heard that. That's cool. I, mean, I, I just think that's cool that this couple was so in love, so committed, so devoted to one another, that when they just walked through life together, and then when the time came to go, they both went. 
I, I, I love that. And, and we think, oh, how sweet they're in love. Maybe you think, how on earth did they last 72 years? Because if I look at my marriage, I, I don't know how on earth my marriage could make it 72 years. Maybe you're saying that because marriage is tough. The way a Christian marriage gets to this place is by remembering that marriage is primarily, primarily about something bigger than our happiness. Can I just say that again? Because that's so counterintuitive to our culture. Marriage is about something bigger than your happiness. Your marriage is really about Jesus. So let's do this. Let's, let's tread this Let's trace this thread through the book of James. Let's look at some different principles. If we pull them out, the ones that James has been teaching, and if we apply them directly to our marriage, let's see what this looks like. And then you'll begin to understand why I had Tim reading all over the first three chapters of James as we pull out some of these ideas and look at them. So here's what a strong marriage that focuses on Christ. I'm going to talk about five things today. Uh, Five things. First of all, a strong marriage has a mission. A strong marriage has a mission. I put this first because it might not be the single, or it might be actually the single greatest problem in Christian marriages. A husband and wife come together and they have no earthly or heavenly idea what the purpose of their marriage is. They've never thought about it. Do you know? I mean, just think this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. Do you know the purpose of your marriage? Does your marriage have a purpose? Could you boil it down and say, the purpose of my marriage is this? Does your marriage have a purpose? Does it have a mission? All right, so um, if you look at the book of James, chapter 1, remember, um, in in chapter 1, verse 22, James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So James is talking about, it's not enough to just come to church and hear a nice message and hear Pastor Dave preach this awesome talk, you know? Woo, it's great. Oh, Dave, you were on today, right? And then go away and you hear the word and you go, I have no idea. Don't just listen to the word, do it. And so that in that context, we land upon James chapter one, verse 27. And James says this, religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James says, don't just go to church. Let your life, live your life from the overflow of your intimacy with Christ. That's how your marriage should be lived to. From the overflow of your intimacy with Christ. Your faith should be purposeful. It should result in mission, which is the whole concept that we've been talking about. As the, That's the theme of our, our, of our church for this year. It's the purpose of our church. The purpose of our church this year. That The focus that we're doing is to serve. To serve others. To serve the world. It's living life on a mission. Your marriage should also be pur- purposeful. What's the point of your marriage? Is it to just go to work? Come home? Have a nice house? Raise your 2.5 kids and your 1.2 dogs? And, uh, you know... Go and do it all again next week? Are you just surviving life together? Or are you on the same page on a purpose together? You know, you should have a plan to make your marriage about more than just you. Your marriage should be a blessing to others and bring glory to God. See, the truth is, a mission brings people together. If your marriage is fragmenting, one of the reasons might be is because you don't have a mission 
You're not on the same page. Marriage is hard because we've got these two different people with two different backgrounds coming together. Two different people that have no idea what the other one is really thinking about what it means to be married. Think about your upbringing. I mean, think about how you watched your parents be mom and dad or husband and wife. And then think about your spouse's parents and how they probably did it totally and completely different than your house growing up. And you're coming together with these two different models. Marriage is hard. I was talking to a woman who grew up in a patriarchal family. She grew up in a family where you don't question dad. I don't know, maybe some of you grew up in a family like that. What dad says goes. No one questions him. No one says anything. That's your family. And her husband grew up in a family (laughs) where mom ruled the roost. These two people come together and they have no idea how to be married to each other because they're going to come together and and the husband's going to think that he should just be passive and lay back and do nothing. And the wife's going to think, well, I don't ever have to say or do anything. And all of a sudden you have these people are just floundering. Or imagine the other way. The husband comes in and he thinks, well, my dad, I watched my dad just rule the roost and run over people. So that's what I do. And, And you have a woman who comes from a totally different background and she's trying to run everything. And you bring these two different people together and they're on totally different pages and they end up in the counselor's office because they have no idea how to be married. They need a mission. Those people need to come together and say, listen, we need to work towards something in our marriage. See, the problem is when we have two decision makers making separate decisions instead of two people coming together to make a good decision. When you have two people making two decisions, That's a bad deal. Divide and conquer in a marriage is a bad strategy. Okay, uh, here's the week's events. You take those. I'll take these. I'll see you at the end of the week. That's a really bad strategy for a marriage. James is reminding the church that you need a mission. The church needs to be on a mission. And in the same way, your marriage needs to be on a mission. Um, I I love my my life group. Um, They're just amazing. And... uh, um, I asked Jason and Joy Greer if I could share. They, they have a stated mission as a family. Uh, and I, they let me steal their mission statement. This guides and directs them as a family. Here, here it is, okay? You're going to be in awe of this because like 99% of us have never thought to actually write down a mission statement for our family. Okay, here's the Greer mission statement, all right? Oh, by the way, thanks, because now it's public accountability for them too. Uh, <laughs> all right, they said... We are a growing family who's very intentional about our relationship with God, each other, and the world. We've been convicted to, bring, to build strong family relationships, to focus on others, homeschool our children, participate in missions, and live debt-free. Our ultimate goal is to raise up children who love God and love others. Pretty darn cool. I mean, that's their mission. That doesn't work exactly for me, but I mean, I just love the fact that they thought and been intentional about that their marriage is on a mission. You have a mission from your family. It keeps you from hearing the word and not doing it. Now make a mission for your family. Jason and Joy will help you. If you need some pointers, they'll point you in the right direction, right guys? And uh, I mean, they'll help you think through that and put your family on a mission. All right, the second thing from James is from chapter two. First of all, a strong marriage has a mission. A strong marriage also makes sacrifices. A strong marriage puts, other, puts the other person's needs first. 
The fastest way to failure in a marriage is to believe that it's a 50-50 proposition. That's a bad idea. There's, I always sing that there's an old country music song uh, about two kids that live and they walk along this fence and they meet in the middle all the time. And then at the end of the country music song, he says, now that we're married, uh, whenever we have an argument, you keep walking your way, I'll keep walking mine, and we'll meet in the middle and all will be happy. And I, I just scream whenever I hear that song. That's the dumbest idea for marriage ever. Because all marriage is a 50-50 proposition does for us is helps us to focus on how our spouse is not meeting up to his or her 50%. We very rarely go, oh boy, I'm not living up to my 50%. I got to get on it. No. All we do is focus on the other person and how they're not meeting their 50%. You know what a good marriage is? A good marriage is a 100-0 proposition. I am saying I will invest everything and sacrifice totally and completely for my spouse. That's tough. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. James takes these words of Jesus, these words of Moses and that Jesus used. Chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so he's quoting Moses, and then he's quoting how Jesus quoted that as well as, as the, the great commandment. You know, love God. The second one, love your neighbor. So Jesus is quoting that. So James takes that. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then James talks about how favoritism in the church has no place because we're not really loving our neighbors. What if we took that and applied that to our marriage? How, how did Jesus fulfill this command? Love God, love people. How did he fulfill that command to love people? Did he do it as a 50-50 proposition with us? Did he say, okay, everyone, um, I'll do some nice things for you, but you have to do some nice things for me. And then, you know, you can't do it all, so I'll do the rest. No. Jesus let us, humanity, nail him to a cross. At any moment, he could have stopped this whole thing. At any moment, he didn't. He sacrificed totally and completely. This is a radical message. The world says, that's crazy. I'm not going to sacrifice myself 100% for my spouse. You're nuts. I mean, what have they done for me lately? The message of the cross is radical. In a Christian marriage, you shouldn't ever complain that you have to do everything. The truth is you get to do everything. That's the point of loving each other as you love yourself. Some of you say, well, that's ridiculous, Dave. If everyone completely served everyone else all the time, no one would ever get anything done, right? It's like, you know, you open the door for someone, and have you ever had that, oh, after you, oh, no, after you, oh, after you, after you, after you. I mean, you just stand there and pick your nose for a while, right? And they'd say, what, if everyone serves everyone, this was ridiculous, it never works. Man, I say, if that was what happened, that'd be awesome. I mean, realistically, we're so sinful and hard-hearted that it's a struggle every day for us to not just put ourselves and our own needs first. I was talking to a guy this week who's a total clean, clean freak. He values a clean house. His wife, and, and he's newly married, so his wife, on the other hand, um, doesn't probably value these things as much. In fact, his wife values people. She's, she's a people person, like 
you know, so who cares if there's 15 loads of laundry that need to be done, right? Uh, there's someone out there I can talk to, and I'd rather sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk. And it's just driving this guy bonkers and crazy as he's just trying to adjust to a new marriage. The key, and, and as we talked about it, uh, you know, I, I was talking with him about it, and I said, how do you keep yourself from focusing so much on what she's not doing that you don't, that you become bitter? How do you keep yourself from being bitter? And he just goes, oh, it's so hard to not be bitter. The key in making sacrifices is to not be bitter over making those sacrifices. The next key then is to learn the value of your spouse's strengths. I mean, sometimes like when Clarissa and I first got married and, and we did things so differently. I mean, I tell people the first couple of years of our marriage, it was hell. Like, I can just say it. It was hell. It was awful. We fought. Uh, it was just bad. I'm like, I'm going to be a pastor. This is my marriage. This is terrible. You know, and I'll tell you the moment for me where it changed. The moment for me it changed was, I, was when I stopped focusing on the ways that Clarissa wasn't meeting my expectations. And I started to see what a beautiful creation God has made her. When I started to love her for her strengths, it was a sacrifice for me to go, I give up the right to focus on everything she's not doing for me. And I focus on loving her for who God made her. It radically changed my view of our marriage. It started with me. I always say that God um, played a bait and switch on me with Clarissa. The first date that Clarissa and I were on, uh, you know, I mean, we're just kids. We're at the Moody Bible Institute together. And I saw her across the plaza and was immediately in love with her because she had awesome hair. And uh, it was great. And, uh, and so we ended up on this very first date. We were, we were driving as a brother-sister floor, a guy's floor connected with a girl's floor. I think it was really just for dating purposes, but, you know, whatever. And so uh, it worked for me. And so we're in the car, and uh, she shows up at my car. I'm going to drive to this uh, camping retreat that all all of these people were on together. And she brings me a plate of cookies. Oh, this woman knows the way to my heart, right? Like, you know, the fresh-baked, gooey, oh. And I was like, this is so awesome. I love this woman. I want to marry her. And she is an amazing baker. Uh, You know, because I I just all of a sudden got this picture of my wife um, as the perfect pastor's wife. She never has an opinion on anything. She's just quiet, you know, sings in the worship team. Uh, just does whatever I tell her to do. Like, this is awesome. And so this is the opinion, you know. And uh, all those people who really know Clarissa are like, ha, 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 Dave. You know? And so all of a sudden, I'm in love with her now. So it's too late. And I discovered that this woman is a really strong woman with opinions. Now, I've come to see those as really good opinions. Um, I say God didn't give me what I thought I wanted in a spouse. God gave me who I needed. God gave me a woman who wasn't afraid to tell me, Dave, you're wrong. I mean, in this beautiful picture of, of, of submissiveness and, and kindness and mutual respect and love, she's not afraid to go, Dave, you're just plain wrong on this. Or Dave, you need to think about this. Or Dave, guess what? People are more important than tasks. Like, you know, she says these things to me and she's just speaking truth into my life. God gave me what I needed. 
I could have been bitter because I didn't get what I thought I wanted. I'm grateful because I got the wife I needed. I thought I was sacrificing to love my wife for her strengths. Turns out my sacrificing by looking at her strengths brought me the greatest blessing that I ever could imagine. Do you know that God gave you your spouse or will give you your spouse because that's who you need? I mean, if we really believe in the sovereignty of God and we put this together, there's something there that's who you need. One of the ways you can sacrifice is just by refusing to hold on to bitterness of unmet expectations and seeing true richness and blessing. True richness and blessing in the strengths of your spouse. All right, I'm going to move through these last three. Here we go. Number three. So marriage has a mission. A strong marriage makes sacrifices. Third one, a strong marriage is slow to anger. This might be one of the most challenging parts of the entire book of James. Um, All right, the the truth of the matter is anger usually comes from hurt, I believe. A, A lot of the anger in our lives comes from hurt. Now, if we were to look at James chapter 1 verse 19... (laughs) apply this one to your marriage, right? Dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not accomplish the righteous life that God desires. One of the most interesting challenges of marriage is is no one can hurt you more than your spouse can hurt you, right? And I, I, like, imagine this. Put up these two circles. Like, you know, just imagine... Okay, one of those is you and one of those is your spouse. So let's say you got married at 25 years of age, okay? For the first 25 years of your life, you woke up in the morning and, and you're, one, you're, you're just completely contained in yourself. You didn't have to worry about anyone else. You didn't think about it. You primarily thought, what am I going to do today? You know, I got to brush my teeth because I got this terrible taste in my mouth. And I'm hungry. I want some breakfast. And what's my day look like? And you go through your whole day. And primarily, the only person you thought about in your day was you. What's more, as people... Uh, as people engaged in your life, you could let them into your circle, into your inner self. You could just kind of let them close to you into this emotional circle. You could say, come on in. I welcome you in. And we would let these people in our life, co-workers, relatives, whatever, we'd let them in for a time. And then if they would do something to hurt us, we would escort them out. <laughs> you know, you're done. You can leave now. And we would emotionally escort them out. And so this is how if you got married at 25, let's say, for the first 24 years of your life, that's how you lived. The problem is, the scripture says that when two people get married, they become one. So you put these two circles and, and you push them together. And uh, they're now one circle. So the problem is, is that when you're, now who's in your circle all the time to hurt you? It's your spouse. And you can't just say, um, I escort you out now, <laughs> right? You can't just go, oh, you hurt me. We'll talk in a week. No, you can't because you're one. The two have become one. Most anger comes from hurt. And the problem happens emotionally when we get into a place in marriage where we've emotionally tried to pull those circles apart because our spouse has hurt us and we don't want to be hurt anymore. You see, a strong marriage is slow to anger because it recognizes that our spouse is the one that can probably hurt us the most. So we're careful with our spouse. And we understand that, you know, our spouse loves us and they're not trying to just wound us. Anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. 
All right, so you're going to learn a lot about me today that things you probably didn't want to know because I've made so many mistakes in my marriage. It's only by God's grace and Clarissa's mercy that, uh, that we are married and happily married today. Um, I'll never forget, it was quite a long time ago, early in our marriage, um, we were in a serious, well, I call them fights, she calls them discussions, okay? And so we were in one of those moments, and, and I, ha- I was trying to get out the door, I had to get somewhere, but it was one of those conversations, you can't just leave it, right? And so, and I just was getting more frustrated with myself, frustrated with myself, because I couldn't communicate to her, and I knew that uh, I wasn't being the husband I ought to be, and I didn't want to admit that, though, and it's just a mess. And I just, kept, I just kept getting more angry and more angry and more angry. And finally, it just exploded. And it exploded with a cell phone in my hand. And I just took that cell phone and I smashed it into the ground. Clarissa's is just like, who did I marry, you know? <laughs> and I'm just mortified. <laughs> Not to mention, my cell phone is like in 4,000 pieces now on the ground. Like, oh. I mean, that was unacceptable. How did that accomplish the righteousness that God desires in me? I mean, it's just, oh, total failure. All I could do is just shut my mouth and stand there and go, I screwed this up. I'm so sorry. Just stand there broken. Sometimes internal anger expresses itself like that in an embarrassing outward way. Sometimes some of you are more controlled than I am, and your anger just internalizes. And so, so what an internal anger looks like, an internal anger looks like I'm going to emotionally move someone away from me and withdraw, and that's how I'm punishing them. Some of you have had that kind of expression of your anger. You go, we're not talking about it. It's not going to, you're not going to even know I'm angry. But I no longer let you into my life. That kind of anger does not accomplish the righteousness that God desires. Imagine that you're in a debate with someone. Okay, in this debate, let's say you're arguing about, um, you know, Fords and Chevys. Something ridiculous like that. All right, and which one's better? And so you're going back and forth, and you're talking about all these great cars, and, and, uh, and it gets heated, right? Because you're a passionate Ford person, let's say, and they're a passionate Chevy person, and you're discussing cars with them. Um, as this person makes an argument, generally in a debate, we don't really hear what they say. We let what they say filter into our head, but while they're talking, while that person's arguing to me why Chevys are great, I'm not really thinking about their point. I'm trying to prepare a rebuttal because I'm kind of mad. Maybe they're winning the debate, and it's even worse. In marriage, that's a bad idea. In marriage, when you're having a debate, discussion, argument, the job that you should have is not to win the argument. You will lose if you win. The, the, the goal of, of this is to not just burst out in anger. The goal is actually to listen uh, I, I heard a, uh, a guy talking about marriage once, and he says that uh, he said every married couple, when they're in a discussion, should get a piece of paper and write the words "I am not your enemy" and stick it to your forehead, so that when you're in a discussion, you could. Ow, oh, that hurt. Um, when you're in a discussion, don't do it that hard. When you're in a discussion, um, that you can remember. Okay, listen, my mate's not my enemy. You know, my spouse is not my enemy. The goal is not to win. The goal is to listen. 
this is one thing that I talk about all the time in premarital counseling is I, is I try to get people to understand uh, that the goal of a discussion is to listen. Don't just become angry. Listen. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. All right, so that's the third thing. The fourth thing. A, a strong marriage not only has a mission, it makes sacrifices, it's slow to anger, but it allows the Holy Spirit to control the tongue. This flows, point three flows right into point four today. Um, last week, we talked about controlling the tongue. And, and the basic point that we talked about last week in controlling our tongue is we can't. The tongue is so powerful, it is uncontrollable by any one human being. That's James's point in chapter 3, uh, verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed. No man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And last week we talked about how the only way to control the tongue is not you and me, but it's by God himself, his Holy Spirit, living and working in us so that we're not controlling it. He is. Have you ever had this moment where something leaves your mouth that's totally hurtful? Selfish, maybe not even true. You just can't take it back. Maybe your pride won't let you admit that you're wrong. You know, the truth is, you can't change your spouse. You, you, I mean, sometimes, like some of us, uh, we're really good at um, our debates and arguments. And, and we think, okay, if I just keep talking, my spouse will change. So I'll just keep talking. And if one of these days, some of those words are going to get through her head or his head. And all of a sudden, we're going to go... Oh, you're right. So we just keep talking. Blah, 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 blah. That usually doesn't work. I, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, you know. We have to allow this Holy Spirit to control our, our tongue. And the primary thing I tell people in marriage all the time is that you can't change your spouse. You can only change you. God is the one that can change our heart. Trusting God sometimes just meaning holding our tongue. Spouses, did you know oftentimes that your, your spouse sees himself or herself through your eyes? So your tongue becomes very important. Um, guys especially, um, most of us are a really insecure lot. Like, just to be honest. Um, we usually don't let that show, show. We put up the hard exterior. And, and we don't let people see that we're emotionally insecure, especially other guys, because that's not cool. And so uh, uh, guys especially are a pretty emotionally insecure lot. And we need our, our wives to pour into us. So if our wives are helping us see what God is doing in us, wives, I mean, you can be— if you have a husband, you feel lack self-confidence. Women, man, you can— totally change your husband. God can change your husband as he controls your words to speak words of encouragement to him. You, you can't change him. God can. And you can be a tool and a vessel by speaking words of encouragement. Men, your wives just need you to cherish them, you know? To speak words that say, I cherish you. I mean, just simple little things. If we control, allow the Holy Spirit to control our tongue, it builds a strong marriage. You see, because a strong marriage, a Christian marriage, is a marriage that focuses on Christ. So, uh, the chapter 2, verse 18, uh, James says, uh, and at the crux of his epistle here, uh, at the crux of what he's saying in, in chapter 2, he says, Some will say, you have faith and I have deeds. 
Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Our faith should act and it should be no different in marriage. Last thing. A strong marriage perseveres. We're back to the beginning of James now. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Marriage is worth it. But marriage, sometimes we should describe it, and we can describe it as a trial. Um, Ryan told me this quote, Ryan Lenners told me this quote, and it's not his, but uh, marriage is not about our happiness. It's about our holiness. I don't know who said that. I give credit to whoever it is, but that's a great quote. You see, we persevere in marriage because we recognize that marriage isn't just about our happiness. Something bigger is going on in our marriage than just our happiness. Um, <clears throat> So there's been a point, and you've already got this, that my marriage was tough, and God changed me and did some awesome work in my heart. And he changed Clarissa, too. Um, but there's been some points in our marriage where, um, like, I mean, even when I've been a pastor, you know? I mean, here I am, a youth pastor, and my marriage is not going well. I mean, it's just hard. And... Um, I think there was a point in my life where I, I just had re- resigned myself to be in a miserable marriage for the rest of my life. Because, you know, I'm a pastor, so I can't tell anyone that my marriage is a mess, right? Because, you know, I have to put on this I'm perfect shell for everyone to see. And, uh, and so I couldn't tell anyone. Uh, and I just, I mean, what else am I going to do? Like, this is what I love. I love being a pastor. And, and so I just, I guess I'll just be in a miserable marriage for the rest of my life. And I'm so grateful that God rescued me from that mindset. Because God began to help me see that the reason for my marriage was a picture. Did, did, you know, did you know what Jesus, what God calls the relationship between Jesus and the church? He calls it a marriage. The picture between Christ and the church is, is a marriage. Like that's Ephesians 5. So did you know that your marriage is about more than just you? Your marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. What you're doing in your marriage isn't just about my happiness and, and what I want and how I want to put all this together and, and hopefully I'll... Be, your marriage is about so much bigger, more important things than your happiness. Something sacred is going on. Just saying, well, I'll just live in a miserable marriage is not perseverance. Perseverance is understanding that my marriage is about Christ. So how I treat my wife reflects on my faith in Jesus. How my wife treats me reflects on that. Like there's a bigger picture going on here. And I'm so grateful that God gently spoke to me and he reminded me that I might not be all happy with Clarissa and she might not be all happy with me. But God gently spoke to me and he he said, uh, he reminded me, Dave, uh, you know, your marriage is a picture. And he reminded me that I was his bride, bride of Christ. And how would I like it if God just said, well, I guess I'm stuck with him. God didn't love me like that. God loved me with passion and abandon. I should love my wife with passion and abandon. 
because Jesus is madly in love with me. It made me think about myself. It made me think about what I need to change. And so this is where we're left in James. I mean, if we seriously look at this text and we go, okay, how do I apply these things to my marriage? We begin to understand that my marriage should have a mission. My marriage is about making sacrifices. It's about being slow to anger and holding on and controlling my tongue through the power of the Spirit and about persevering. Because Christ loves you that much. Let's pray. God, um, I pray that Waukee Community Church would be a place where uh, you build strong marriages, not for our happiness, but for something greater. And oh God, I do pray for the happiness of our marriages. Don't get me wrong. God, I pray for that. But I pray that we would love each other like Christ loved the church. God, I pray that our, our, our husbands would do that well. God, I, I pray that, that, Lord, there would be this mutual, beautiful picture of marriage in our, in our church and that we would understand that something bigger is going on here than just us. And, Lord, so encourage us today. Lord, help us to live for the glory of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. We pray all this in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.